We're going to utilize this series to walk through kind of our heart or even our vision for our church for this year. And as I mentioned before, a primary place we're expressing and accomplishing this vision is through our home groups, but it really is woven through the expectation we have for everyone in our church, whether you're connected to a home group or not. It touches the DNA of what we do on Sundays and any other time we gather, whether it's for a one-off event or for a, a short class or anything. Our goal as a church basically is to grow mature disciples of Jesus by equipping God's people to speak God's word in loving relationship to one another and to our neighbors. That's our goal as a church. And so we're going to line by line work through that the next few weeks. Or if I can put it differently, we're going to talk uh, about the why of discipleship, the how of discipleship, uh, and then the where of discipleship. That's what we're going to do the next three weeks. So this morning, we're going to focus on why make disciples, or to put it in uh, in our church vision, why is that our goal? Why is that our agenda? To grow mature disciples in Jesus. And I want to remind you this morning, because sometimes it needs to be said, when we talk about a church vision, we're not talking about my vision, okay? We're not talking about the things that I'm committed to doing, but the things that we collectively as the church, the body of Christ, are committed to doing, okay? And so this is what I believe God has for us. And I want to show you this morning that the why of discipleship is not just, this is a thing that Christians do sometimes, or this is a thing that some churches make important, or this is a choice in the chocolate box of life for how a Christian can devote their lives. I wanna show you that this is the thing. I wanna talk big picture. I wanna show you Jesus's agenda for the church throughout history and show you that this is it, okay? That if you could have a personal mission statement in your life, Whatever it is, it's going to fit in this box, because this is the big box, okay? This is the one that all other boxes of the Christian life fit into. Before we read the passage in Titus, let me express to you Jesus' mission to the church in his own words, okay? Here's what's happened. This is the very end of Matthew. Jesus has come. He's ministered with his disciples for three years. He's been brutally put to death, and just as he promised, raised three days later, he continues to appear to the disciples over the course of 40 days, and here we get to the point where he ascends into heaven and gives his final instructions. Listen to what he says. This is Matthew 28, verse 18. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's the mission of the church. Go, therefore, and make disciples. That's what we've been commanded to do as the church collectively, this church, and as individual parts of the body of Christ uh, in our individual lives. So, that's what we've been called to do, but why? Why is the final instructions Jesus gives to make disciples? To go into the whole world and make disciples until the end of the age? Why? Well, the thing about Titus is it gives us a good picture of this. We're going to pick up in verse uh, 11 of Titus chapter 2 this morning. But I want to tell you what's come before this, okay? Usually in Paul's letters, Paul is the author of Titus as well as many books in the New Testament, usually Paul begins doctrinally. Here's who God is. 
Here's what God has done in Jesus Christ. Here is the Christian life as it's presented to you. And then we hit a therefore. Therefore, respond and do these things. Live in this way. Forsake these things. Embrace these things. Okay? You can see that breakdown in the book of Romans. And so Romans 1 through 12 is all doctrinal. And then 12.1 says, I beg you, therefore, brethren, because of the mercies of God, the first half, off your bodies as a living sacrifice, the second half. You can see it in Ephesians. And so Ephesians, he lays out God's great plan of salvation in 1 through 3. And then in chapter 4, he says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, walk in a manner worthy of the calling, chapters 1 through 3, in which you were called. Okay? Uh, I could go on. It's a common pattern. But Titus, he shakes things up. And the first half of Titus is telling people how to behave in the church. Titus is a young representative of Paul who's working in a church on the island of Crete and is trying to just set things straight, lay a good foundation. And so this is Paul's instruction manual on how to be the church. But that all shifts in chapter 2 when he finally gives us the reason why we are to do what we do, why men are supposed to behave a particular way in the church, why women are supposed to behave a particular way. You can read on your own time through chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2 and see that he's basically turned to different people in the church and said, this is how you should do life. It's here in verse 11 that he gives us the why, and it's a big why. Okay? It's the big why. It's the one that we're talking about. Read with me together. In verse 11, we're going to read all the way through 14, and then we'll pray. For, or because, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would endow us as your church, as the local church here, Calvary the Hill, in the neighborhood of Capitol Hill. I pray that you would endow us with your great vision for our lives as individuals and our lives collectively. You've called us to go and make disciples and I pray that through your word this morning you would tell us why. I ask that your spirit would speak and not only teach us this morning, instruct us from your word, but convict us of the truth of these things and conform us to your plan. We pray this in your name, amen. So here, Paul gives us the why. The why that goes with all of the behaviors they're supposed to embrace and to avoid. In doing so, he covers um, three different pieces, and those are what I want to focus on. He talks about the why being what God has done, the why being what God will do, and the why being what God is doing. Okay? He speaks in three tenses. He talks about Jesus has come, he talks about Jesus is coming, and he talks about the present age that we live in in between those two times, okay? From all of those categories, we find our reasons for focusing on discipleship this morning, okay? Now, 
Let's begin with the past tense one in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That's what God has done. The grace of God has appeared. Jesus has come. Okay. Now, notice the future tense one in verse 3. We are currently waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of the great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Okay. So that's the future. That's looking down the road. Notice that both of those, verse 11 and verse 13, use the same word, appearing. In the Greek, it's the word epiphany. Okay? Uh, it's usually used of uh, celestial things, stuff in space that suddenly appear. Okay? And so Jesus has appeared. Jesus will appear. But notice also that they're different. The first one is the grace of God has appeared. And the second one is waiting for the blessed hope of the appearing of the glory. Okay? So we have an appearing of grace and we have an appearing of glory. Those are the start and finish of the church. Those are the beginning and end of the Christian age. That is uh, the race that we are running. Okay, and so what we find in the middle is the present tense. And notice the present tense is, uh, again in verse 12, so that grace of God appeared, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. And then we see the same thing in verse 14. This great God and Savior who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, that's now, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works, that's now, okay? So those are the three facets, those are the three pieces, uh, and through it, we can really get a lens through the why make disciples, okay? Now, one last clarification here. What is a disciple? What is discipleship? Okay. Sometimes churches have a tendency to uh, utilize this word in such a specific way that it gets tied to methodology. What I mean is we have discipleship classes or discipleship programs, or if you're interested, you can come and be discipled. But what the word really means, remember, is attached to Jesus's mission statement for the church, that the church's focus is to go into all the world and make disciples. Okay. And so if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, not only are you a disciple, but you're called to discipleship. And anytime we narrow it down further than that, we lose part of what it means. Now, uh, follower of Jesus is a pretty good synonym for discipleship, but I think we can push it a little bit further. Um, Jesus takes the language of discipleship from the ancient world, okay? Um, oftentimes, Jesus' disciples call him teacher, rabbi, and that, uh, that relationship of teacher and student is close to the relationship of discipleship, okay? But here's the difference. The word that's used in the Greek New Testament for disciple, for discipleship, points not to learning a subject, but to learning a person following a person, okay? So you, you would be a student of mathematics, but a disciple of Pythagoras. One implies relationship, okay? And so this is important because the idea of discipleship is not just learning stuff about God. It's transformative learning. It's changing who we are, growing more 
like Jesus and in doing so growing closer to Jesus in relationship. That's what it means to be a disciple. That's why Jesus doesn't just create a curriculum and do a correspondence course with the 12. What does he do? He says, come, follow me, go where I go, see what I do, do what I do. Hear my words and use them as your words. Follow in my footsteps, eat with me, sleep lying next to me, pray with me. Okay. Discipleship makes people more like Jesus by employing God's word in the course of life. Okay, that's the broad category of what we're talking about. Now, discipleship isn't actually mentioned here, but there is a very appropriate synonym here. Notice what it says in verse 11 again. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us. Okay, the grace of God has appeared, training us. Now, that word training is where we get our word for pedagogue or pedagogy. In other words, it's generally used of raising children. Okay. When it's used here, it gives us a good metaphor for the Christian life, the one, one that the New Testament uses extensively, which is growing in maturity. Okay. Discipleship means that when we are born again as Christians, we're like baby Christians. And God's goal is not to leave us as baby Christians, although we are significantly different than we were because now we're alive, but to grow us into mature Christians who better represent and better walk in what it means to be in Christ, what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay? This is an important thing because it can be a mistake to read Jesus' words, go into all the world and make disciples in the limited sense of go into all the world and bring about conversions. That would be like saying go into all the world and make spiritual babies. But by using the phrase disciples, we're not done when people pray and respond to Jesus, when people give their lives to Jesus, when they put their trust in Jesus. We actually are beginning. Okay. Now, the other thing that I want to just lay out for our understanding here is sometimes discipleship is mistaken for mentorship. Okay. Now, we live in a day and an age, especially for men, where due to a lack of father figures or even the failing of our own father figures, we feel distinguishly or distinctively that lack. And so a lot of times I have young men come to me and they basically say, I'm looking for someone to disciple me. And what they mean is, I'm looking for someone to mentor me, to be this role in my life. Oftentimes they point to Paul and they say, I am a Timothy looking for Paul, or I am a Titus looking for Paul. That's fine as long as you understand that Titus and Timothy and Epaphroditus and Luke, this was a big group effort, okay? It wasn't a one-on-one -on -one relationship. It was a bunch of intermixed relationships, and that's the same thing, okay? God doesn't merely call us as individuals to find someone who knows Jesus a little bit less than us and pour into them for life. He calls us collectively as a church to see the whole church grow together collectively, okay? And so here's, this is, this is actually really encouraging, okay? Because it means that you can actively be a good discipler one decision at a time. We'll talk more about this next week, but it means that you can choose today, you can look at a person in this room or in your home group, or outside the church and say, how can I help them take one step closer to maturity in Jesus? 
That's such a broad category. There's so many things you can do. That's what we're going to talk about in this series. But we still need to talk about the why. And so let's talk about those three tenses that we see here. The first reason we should make disciples is because, verse 11, the grace of God has appeared, bringing us salvation for all people. Why do we make disciples? Because Jesus has come. Now, notice here the way that it labels Jesus' coming is as the appearance of the grace of God. Now, let's be clear here this morning. God's grace predates the birth of Jesus. Grace is part of who God is. And even in the Old Testament, we see it functioning all the time. Take Noah, okay? The world has gone literally to hell in a handbasket. Everything is a mess. But Noah finds grace in the eyes of the Lord, Genesis chapter 6. And so God calls him and saves his family. Sometimes we read that story as if Noah is just the best thing running in the human race. Like he's the most righteous and altogether person. And so God looks at the earth and he goes, well, at least I can spare him. He's not that bad. That's not the story. Noah is part of the same generation that verses earlier says uh, that the imagination of mankind's heart was always evil continuously. That includes Noah. In fact, I have pretty good confidence that it includes Noah because after the flood, we still find sin on planet Earth, don't we? In fact, we find it in Noah's own heart as he gets drunk and passes out in his tent. When we look at Israel, while I was at Bible college, there was a synagogue right next door. And a friend of mine was doing um, labor projects, you know, weeding and things like that at the synagogue because most of the Jewish family there were elderly. And so he was just lending a hand as a young 20-something. And one day, one of, the, one of the Jewish members of that synagogue was talking with him, and he said, do you, know, do you know why God chose Israel? And my friend said, no, why? And he said, God had his perfect law. And he took it to all of the nations one by one and said, can you keep it? Will, will you take my law and will you follow it? Will you obey? And the Jews said, yes. Now, it's an interesting idea, but in Deuteronomy chapter 7, it tells us exactly why God chose Israel, and it's not because they were better or greater or more attractive than the other nations. It's just because God loved them. That was a choice that God made. When we use this word grace, that's what we're talking about. In fact, the word grace in the New Testament is, is the word charis, okay? Uh, and it, it literally, as a noun, just means a gift, when it says the gift of God has appeared, bringing salvation, it means that salvation for mankind is at God's expense, on God's behalf, offered to us freely and fully in Christ Jesus. But as I said, that's always who God's been, but it was significantly visible in Jesus Christ. Like I said, this word appearance is an epiphany. It's a sudden, bright, shining light. It's the dawning of a new day. That's why John tells us in John chapter 1, for the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came in Jesus Christ. It was visible. It was tangible. And every day that Jesus lived, every word that he spoke, every act that he performed was a gift. He healed the blind and the lame. He encouraged the discouraged and the despairing. He brought those who were isolated 
and pariahs in their community back into fellowship. He lovingly confronted people's sin that was destructively damaging their lives and called them to repentance. Everything Jesus did was a gift, but of course, when it talks here about Jesus bringing salvation to all men, that's not just the blind receiving sight. That's not just the isolated having a way back into community or the unclean being made clean. That brings us to the cross. It brings us to Jesus' death. The idea here of the gift of God or the grace of God bringing salvation is pointed out more clearly in verse 13. It says, right now we are waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing and the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Notice the connection there. Grace appeared bringing salvation. We're waiting for the one who is our Savior, the one who saved us. Okay? Salvation comes in Jesus Christ. I know it's a simple idea, but notice how he did so. Verse 14, who gave himself for us. This is God's great gift in Jesus Christ. God gave himself in our place. The idea of the word for there is in our place. It's substitutionary. Jesus took the death that we deserve because of sin and offers us freely the life that he deserves because of his righteousness. That's why Paul, uh, and Martin Luther called this verse, the great exchange, says that he who knew no sin, Jesus, became sin on the cross. He became the embodiment of all the evil of humanity as a whole and experienced the full consequence and God's righteous judgment of that. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And so now we're clothed in what Martin Luther liked to call alien righteousness. We stand before God not as perfect people, but perfected people because we've been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. This is God's great gift. And like all gifts, it is a gift that is given at the cost of the giver and freely offered to the recipient. Why do we make disciples? Because this is the gift we've received. We make disciples because God in Jesus Christ has accomplished everything necessary for salvation for all of humanity. And we've opened that present. We've received that gift. We've entered back into a restored relationship with God himself. We've been adopted into his family, it says in the New Testament. And so now we find even in our own hearts a longing that cries out, Father, We've been filled with the Holy Spirit, so not only, can we, uh, not only are we forgiven for our sins and continuously forgiven for our ongoing sins, but we're also enabled and empowered to live rightly. We have a newness of life in us through the gift of Jesus Christ, not of our own making. Okay. Now, I want you to notice uh, the horse is directly before the cart here. So the grace of God appears and brings salvation, and it teaches us to what? Okay, verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Notice the order there. Because we have been saved, we should live this way. Not, if you live this way, you shall be saved. Okay, 
But the fullness of the gift that God has given in Jesus Christ is not merely an excuse to continue to live the way we want because we have our eternal state taken care of. Because sin is not just against God's will. Sin, Jesus says, is slavery. He says if anyone sins, he is a slave to sin. And so what we have in Jesus Christ is exactly what Jesus promised. Whoever the Son sets free shall be truly free. And so we're free to not live in ways that destroy our lives, that destroy the lives of people around us, that destroy our relationship with God, that destroy the planet that God has given us. The list goes on and on, okay? We need to make sure that we don't think of our role as a church in evangelizing the world and telling people about Jesus. We need to make sure we don't think of it as if we are merely male men and male women. Okay. It's an open letter. It's been written to us as well as to them. We've read it. We've received it. Okay. It's a letter so good it can't help but be shared. This is why the deeper, the deeper your mind is blown in the reality of what God has done for you, the more in touch you are in your need for a Savior and God's provision of that Savior. This is why the more connected you are with what God has given you in Jesus Christ, the more naturally you seek to share it with people around you. Okay? It's an overflowing. It's an epiphany. Right? It's a shout it from the rooftops. It's, uh, you know, it's better than I saved 15% with Geico. Okay? We're talking here about, um, about something that's so good we desire to share it. And the truth is, the truth is, we're all built this way. We all share the things we're excited about. We all take the things that we love and become promoters of them. I know influencers now on Twitter are like a category, but all human beings are influencers. We all talk about our favorite things. We share them with other people. The thing is, if Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection is sufficient for the restoration of all things, for the bringing back of the lost, for taking the dead and raising them to life, from taking us out of the dominion of darkness and into light, for removing us from the influence of Satan and bringing us into the family of God, that's why we make disciples. It's an, it's trite, but if we're going to talk about the world becoming saved, God did the heavy lifting. It's all done in Jesus Christ. It's all available right there for the taking, and so we go and make disciples for this reason. But notice, Paul doesn't stop there. He rolls right into the present age and he says there is a way that we should live and it's this grace that trains us, that instructs us in this way. Like I said, don't put the cart before the horse. It's not renounce ungodliness, live sober lives, and then God will save you. It's God has saved you. Now live sober lives and renounce ungodliness. The order matters, okay? In fact, it helps us to distinguish something that we don't 
lay as expectations on people who don't know Jesus. We could not live rightly without Christ. So we don't expect those who do not know Jesus to do the same. And when they sit in these pews and they're investigating Christianity, we have no standard of living for them. Because we actually believe that they couldn't reach it anyways. And that the good news is that they don't have to in Jesus Christ. But if you know Jesus, a manifestation of what it looks like to follow him, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, is a new set of desires that says the things I used to hold so tightly to, I now loathe. And the things that I never wanted, I now embrace. That's what salvation is. It's newness of life. It's not just a calling to live differently. It's a new life energy, a new spirit that flows in us, that draws us to different things. And what it does is it trains us here. It trains us first to renounce ungodliness. There is something we must turn away from as Christians. And this happens in a big sense. When we first respond to Jesus, it's called repentance. That was the message that the apostles preached. Repent and believe in Jesus. Turn away from these things and turn to Jesus. Stop following after these things and follow Jesus. Stop being saved or seeking salvation in these things and be saved by Jesus. Okay? But there's also the daily and routine renouncing that makes up the Christian life. This is why Jesus said, if anyone seeks to follow me, discipleship, if anyone seeks to follow me, let him take up his cross daily and follow me. Die daily. And so renouncing is something that should be a usual and normal life, but we don't do it begrudgingly to earn God's love. We do it because we've found something better. We do it because we've discovered that everything we need for life and godliness is in Jesus Christ. We do it because in Jeremiah's words, we realize that the things that we're holding on to are broken pots that can hold no water. When there is the fountain of living water offering abundant life to us instead. So we are trained to renounce, to turn away from ungodliness and to live in the positive, self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. There's always a positive to the negative. The Christian life is not one that's merely satisfied with a list of do-nots. It's always don't do, but instead do. Okay, so here's a metaphor that Paul likes to use. Put off who you were in the old man, put on who you are in Jesus Christ. And then he gives us two illustrations that I've always found helpful in Ephesians 4. He says, if lying is your bag, put off lying, remember that we're all part of the same body of Christ, and put on honesty. Okay? And so we don't satisfy God's will for our lives by never speaking so that we don't lie. We have to be vulnerable. We have to share what's really going on. We have to be honest. But the reason we can do so is because God has made us one body in Christ. There is no crime you've committed. There's no sin so significant that you have to hide from the body of Christ because all of us are only here by grace. All of us are only forgiven. The other example he gives in Ephesians chapter 4 is stealing. He says, let the thief no longer steal. Now, we'd all agree that that's a step forward if you stop stealing. But Paul doesn't stop there. He says, instead, 
Let them work a good job with their hands and make money so that they may give to those in need. It's a transition not from taking to not taking, but from taking to giving generously to those in need. Okay? Put off, put on. Here, Paul gives us three categories. Put off ungodliness, and then it says to live self-controlled lives, upright lives, and godly lives in the present age. I want you to notice there's three directions there. Self-controlled is what you do with your body, what you do with your own desires. Upright is actually just the word righteous. It's how you treat other people. And then godly is your relationship with God. And it's worth pointing out that if we scratch that last one off the list, all is lost. What does Jesus warn? He says one day he's going to stand and rule over the earth and all human beings are going to come before them. And some he's going to separate and say, depart from me. And they're going to say, but we did the works and we said the words. We sang the songs. We even cast out demons and we did it all in your name. And he'll say, but I never knew you. God isn't interested in merely behavior modification. He's interested in restoration, and that means restoration with ourselves, with others, and with him. Tim Keller has a really good metaphor of this, which I think is helpful, because we've probably all met those people who are better people than we are and don't know Jesus, and they know it. And so they look at their life and they say, honestly, I'm a pretty good person. I make it my intention to love those around me, to fight, for, uh, fight against injustice, to do all of these things, and anyone would tell you that I'm the best guy you know. But the thing is, and this is Tim Keller's metaphor, he says, what if, what if your mother invested everything in you, gave you all of the rules for right living, and built you into being a perfect person for other people. And in your adult life, you continued to stick to that. But you never visited. You never had any relationship. You never called. God doesn't want your good behavior. He wants you. And so this three-directional reality is where we're headed as Christians. It is your homework in the Christian life. And the good news is, you're not called to do it on your own. In fact, we're called as a group project to grow together, okay? And so when you read here, um, renouncing ungodliness and living self-controlled, upright, and godly lives, that's all of our homework, and we all have a part to play in helping one another move forward. And let's move forward to the third category here. So past, present, and now future, verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you see how we see a different motivation there? The motivation in verse 11 is grace. God has given. That's already true. It's just a fact. In fact, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, that gift is right there. It's available to you this morning. But we as Christians have a second motivation, and the motivation here is called hope. We live our lives looking forward to something, and that something that we're looking forward to is the glorious return of Jesus. In fact, listen to the title that Paul gives him here, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, some still argue that the New Testament never attributes divinity to Jesus. 
but here he's referred to as our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And you say, well, maybe, maybe it's actually saying we're looking for the appearing of God and Jesus together collectively. Grammatically impossible because of the Granville Sharp Rule, okay? Okay, the Granville Sharp Rule says this. It says when two different describers are attached to a single definite article, and followed by a single noun, both the describers uh, uh, attached to the same noun. There's some 35 occasions where this happens in the New Testament. Only two of them are about divinity or things, doctrinal things. Most of them are just usual normal things where no one would disagree. The only way to read this grammatically in the Greek is of being about Jesus who's also God. In fact, here it calls him the mega-god. That's the word for great there in the Greek, the mega-god. Okay, the reality, our anticipation, our hope. This is especially true for us. The disciples, when they were waiting for Jesus, were waiting for Jesus to return, the Jesus that they knew and loved. But Jesus promises a special blessing for those who would believe and not see. We live in this space of longing for someone we've never met. Now, in a significant sense, we have. Jesus says when we gather, he's present. Jesus says when his word is read, it's his words speaking. Jesus says that the spirit that lives in us is the spirit of Christ. But what we're promised at the end of the story in the book of Revelation is that we will be able to embrace the one who died for us physically. That we will be able to converse with the one who prays for us continuously that the one who loved us so much he paid everything to die for us, we will get to spend eternity present with. That's our hope. That's the thing we're shooting for. That's the thing we're aspiring to. And that hope, that hope also cultivates this concept of discipleship. Okay? Let me put it again in terms of a race. If your destination is to see Jesus and be like him, then the way that you run it is towards that goal. The way that you move towards that is by leaning into what God is doing for you in Jesus Christ. And I will tell you frankly, the last step will be the largest. However much you grow in maturity in Christ Jesus will be completely shrunk down relatively by what happens as soon as you die. Because Paul says in a twinkling in an eye, it'll all be over. You'll be fully restored fully righteous, fully loving, complete, finished. But if that's what you long for, to be like Christ and to be with Christ, then that's what you'll live for every day, in every moment. And once again, we have a goal here, collectively as a church, called discipleship. Paul in Ephesians says that Christ loves the church like a husband loves the wife. And then he gets carried away in the metaphor and he talks about things that really only Jesus does. Washing with the water of the word, his bride, so that he might present her to himself blameless and perfect. Okay. But the way that Jesus does that primarily is through his body, the church. 
We'll talk about this next week. What you'll see is Ephesians 4 says that God has given other gifts to the church, not just Jesus, but apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the equipping of the body of Christ so that it builds up itself in love by speaking the truth, by taking the word of God and employing it in one another's lives to see us grow to be more like Jesus. But one of the reasons we do that is because our wedding day is coming. One of the reasons we do this is because Jesus is coming back. Now, there's a second motivation for discipleship in there. It tells us that the life that we're living, as much as we often forget it, is temporary. That the age we exist in as a church, the mission statement that God gave, go into the world and make disciples, it has an end date. It has an expiration date even. It's only this present age where that applies. The time for making disciples, for telling people about Jesus through glorifying God, through world missions. You have one life for that, and it's this one. One of the things that I love about Francis Chan is he has a gift for illustration. And one time he was teaching on the passage in 1 Corinthians where Paul is talking about the fact that the lives we live now will be rewarded. And some of the things we do in life, like wood, hay, stubble, will just burn up and be gone. But other things we do, like gold, silver, and precious stones, will be refined by the fire, be made more beautiful. And he had a balance beam on stage, an entire balance beam. And he put on a helmet, and he said, some of us live lives like this as Christians. And he wrapped his arms and his legs around the balance beam. And he said, you know, we don't, we don't give too much so it doesn't hurt. We live in a gated community. We share Jesus, but only when we're comfortable. Uh, we, you know, we do just the basic low ends. And he said, and then we do this. And he climbs off and he does this, you know, before the judges. He said, that's it. That's, that's how we live our lives. I'm still convicted by that. God has given us this life and invited us into this work, salvation for all people, making them like Jesus. And the time to do it is now. In fact, I want you to notice how the present tense, this present age in the last verse here in verse 14, shows us the big picture of why Jesus came. Look at verse um, 14. Jesus gave himself to redeem... uh, gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who were zealous for good works. That's Jesus' agenda in dying. Okay, notice the steps there. He gave himself for us first to redeem us from all lawlessness. That is not just forgiveness, again, that's freedom. In fact, the phrase to redeem there, it comes from the Exodus. This whole pattern that Paul lays out here comes from the Exodus. Israel was enslaved to Egypt. And God, by a mighty hand, brought them out of that slavery. And just as Passover, it was with the slaying of a lamb and the blood on the door that Israel was protected, so also this is accomplished by Jesus giving himself for us, sacrificing himself for us. But notice it doesn't stop there. It's not just freeing us from all lawlessness, but to purify for himself a people for his own possession. God didn't just liberate Israel and set them free to roam or free to reign over themselves. It was a transition of leadership. He said, Pharaoh is no longer your master. I am. He referred to them as my people, my chosen people, my children. 
That's what discipleship is. It's being grafted in to the children of Israel. It's being adopted into the family of God, becoming a child of God. That's why Paul says, listen, what you do with your body, it matters. Do you not know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? That God has given you this gift of the Holy Spirit and you are now his temple on earth? And then he says, for you were bought with a price. You're no longer your own. You've been redeemed. We now belong to Jesus. If you're uncomfortable with that, you've forgotten who Jesus is. You're still convinced that you're better in your own freedom, which is slavery, than in the slavery of Christ, which is freedom. You've forgotten that you will never be as benevolent or as wise or as sacrificial as Jesus was. How do you know that you can trust your whole life to Jesus? Because he freely and willingly gave up his own in your place. To purify a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That's the last piece there. Not just to purify us out of lawlessness, but to make us actively pursuing doing good things. Now, there's a sense where that's the end game goal to make us people who love like Jesus did, but it's also part of how this discipleship process works because this is what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, that little word so is the most important word in the whole verse. It changes the entire meaning. If he just said, let your light shine and people will see your good works and glorify, then you just have to shine the light. But when he says, let your light so shine, that means there's a way, a right way to shine. There's a way to do good works that point to God, and there's a way to do good works where we stand on top of them, self-confident, perfect, as people's savior, instead of pointing to the one who saved us. But either way here, the idea of zealous for good works is burning for good works, hungry for good works, actively seeking them out. Waking up every morning and going, what does God have for me to do today? Because that's the thing. I'm not talking about things that you come up with as extracurricular activity. Paul says that we are created in Christ Jesus as his workmanship, and we've been created for good works that he's prepared for us beforehand. I want to tell you what type of good works that involves. It's discipleship to invest in other people's lives so that they grow in maturity in Jesus. And so if they're not a Christian and you don't know them, it means getting into loving relationship with them because you cannot make disciples until you make relationships. He calls us into the whole world and none of us lives in the whole world. Most of us don't even live on our block, right, in relationship with our neighbors. It means telling those who don't know Jesus, who we are in relationship with, about Jesus. And that's not just a single conversation. There's a discipleship that exists before conversion. Especially in a world like ours, where, where the belief system of the general human being who you call your neighbor and Christianity is so diverse, don't assume they know what you're talking about. It's a completely different world. It takes time. It takes time to explain who Jesus is. It means for those who are new Christians, who haven't been Christians very long, that you establish them in their faith. 
help them grow to understand who Jesus is and what the Christian life looks like and this every spiritual blessing that's been given them, how the Holy Spirit works, how prayer works, right? who God is, how to read the Bible, these types of things. And then it also means helping those around you by equipping them, looking around and going, who needs help in making disciples and how can I come alongside them so that they also are disciple makers? But all of those stem from the why. And here's the why, as simply as I can put it. We make disciples because Jesus has come and freely offered salvation to the whole world. We make disciples because God has given us this life right now to do so. And we make disciples because our great hope, the thing that we're banking on, the thing that we've vested all of our energy in, is the return of Jesus Christ. And his whole goal was to purify for himself a people, that's us, who are zealous for good works. Okay. Now, as I mentioned, this is the reorientation we're, we're embracing, not just as a church, but in our home groups. We want to do a better job as using home groups as a conduit to make disciples, to see people grow in Jesus. And so if you desire to grow in Jesus Christ, home groups aren't the only way, but they're a way, and one we would encourage you towards. And they're also a place where we expect you, if you're a part of a home group, to learn how to walk in discipling one another, investing in one another, sharing Christ with one another, doing life with one another because that's what it means to be the church. Let me point out one last thing to you. Back in the Gospel of Matthew, in this great mission statement, I don't know if you've noticed this before, but when he gives us instructions, he wraps it in two promises. Jesus gives us two promises, so it's promise, command, promise. I want you to listen to what the promises are. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus says, I have all of the authority and I am completely present. Go therefore and make disciples. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, and even more greatly, Lord, I thank you for the God of the word. That you, not only have you revealed yourself, but what you've revealed about yourself this morning is that you are the God of grace, the God of love, the God of hope, and that you have given us a significant purpose in our lives, one of eternal consequence. And we know, Lord, that when, when Mary took the alabaster flask and dumped it all over your feet, and some who were present blew a gasket because they saw it as a waste. We know nothing, nothing is wasted that we do on your behalf because we can never repay what you've done because every investment we make will pay out tremendous dividends and because there will be no more satisfying phrase ever spoken into our hearts than the words from your mouth, well done, good and faithful servant. I pray, Lord, that we as a church would be encouraged and convicted this morning 
and that we would learn as a church what it means to make this our aim as a body, as individuals, as a lifestyle, and as a purpose in life. I just ask that you would do this work in Jesus' name. Amen.